chapter 24. Luke chapter 24, we're going to pick up in verse 36 this morning. And we won't quite finish, we're going to go to verse 49 this morning. Luke 24, 36 to 49. <clears throat> you know, while the text before us this morning contains a, a great deal of things to contemplate and consider, our, our time is going to have to be focused uh, there, there is much to consider here, but I want also to consider your time. And so, to that end, we're going to concentrate this morning primarily on what are the, the three basic movements of our passage. The first thing that Luke relays to us in this passage is the revelation of the risen Lord. And when I say revelation... I, I mean simply the revealing of our Lord in his risen state. The second thing Luke records for us is the revelation about the risen Lord. It's there we begin to see how Jesus teaches about himself from the special revelation of the Old Testament scriptures. And lastly, we're confronted with the believer's appropriate response to the risen Lord which is really Luke's version here of the Great Commission. All of these points, Luke makes to advance one main idea, and that is this. The risen Lord makes himself known and commands his followers to make him known. So we have three points to follow in the text this morning. The revelation of the risen Lord, the revelation about the risen Lord, and the response to the risen Lord. That said, let's now look at the text together and hear what the Holy Spirit says to the church, beginning in verse 36. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See, my hands and my feet, that is, I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish. And he took it and ate before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. This, friends, is the word of the Lord. Pray with me, will you? Father, we come again another Lord's Day to consider 
your word. Lord, we are grateful for it and we are grateful for its clarity. We, We pray now, God, that you would enable us to understand it. Lord, that you would illuminate the text of Scripture for each of us here this morning and that you would keep me free from error in the explanation of it. Father, we pray that uh, this morning your, your Holy Spirit would work in each of us. That, uh, as my brother prayed a moment ago, that we would see Christ in this text, Lord. We pray, God, that we would behold the glory of the Lord Jesus. We, we need to see the glory of the Lord Jesus, God. And we pray that you would help us to behold it this morning. And in beholding it, Lord, that that you would strengthen weak knees and that you would give strength to feeble faith here this morning. We ask it all in Christ's name. Amen. The first point that Luke would have us to consider this morning is the revelation of the risen Lord. As we pick up the narrative of Luke's gospel account this week, we find the disciples in a a study session of sorts. The 11 apostles were joined in their their hideout location by the two disciples Jesus appeared to on the road to Emmaus. And we find them comparing notes, as it were. The, The text says they were talking about these things. These things being the appearances to Peter and the uh, appearance to the Emmaus disciples. They were no no doubt trying to compare their experiences to determine if they could really believe that Jesus had risen from the dead. And it's in this context, our passage tells us, that Jesus himself stood among them. And in spite of Jesus' pronouncement of peace to you, verse 37 says their response was to be startled and frightened. But, but why? Well, why would these men who loved Jesus so much be afraid at his appearance? Well, Luke explains their emotion in saying that they thought that they saw a spirit. Their, their inclination here, we see, even as they discussed the resurrection appearances of Jesus, was not to believe that he he stood before them in a glorified body. Their inclination was to think that they were seeing a disembodied spirit. After all, the Apostle John tells us in his account of this scene that the disciples were behind locked doors. So Jesus had to somehow supernaturally enter the room. Yet, being frightened... Jesus spoke directly to the substance of their fears, asking in verse 38, Why are you troubled? And and why do doubts arise in your heart? But but Jesus doesn't need them to answer his question, really. He already knew why doubts arose in them. Their minds wouldn't let them believe that Jesus, having been dead, was dead no longer. And knowing their hearts and minds, Jesus doesn't wait for their response. In the very next breath, Jesus begins to offer himself to them for proof that he did in fact rise from the dead. Look there in verse 39. Jesus says, see my hands and my feet, 
that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. So in order to convince the disciples that what they were seeing is not just some disembodied spirit, but a a real man who was risen from the grave, Jesus engages their senses. He tells them to, to see and to touch him. Now, you may say, well, why does Jesus make such a big deal about his, his physical substance here? What, what significance does that add to his resurrection or his redemptive work? And there's at least two significant responses to that and, and, and reasons why Jesus points to and emphasizes his physical appearance to the disciples. The first we read of is the necessity to confirm his identity. He wanted the disciples to know that this was indeed Jesus. The same Jesus who'd been crucified just a couple of days previous. He invites them to see his his parts, my hands and my feet, he says. And not just the fact that he possessed hands and feet as a man, but no doubt that these hands and feet were marked by the evidence of his crucifixion. He says this so that they would see it is I myself, he says. Jesus wants to eliminate any notion that he is a mere imposter of the one who hung on the cross. So he emphasizes his physical parts in the first place to confirm his identity. And the second reason Jesus highlights his physical nature is to show that he is not just Jesus of Nazareth, but he's none other than the Lord of life. He's no mere spirit. Look again at verse 39. He says, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. To discern the significance of Jesus' bodily resurrection, we need only to consider what Jesus himself said in Luke chapter 11 and verse 29. It's there that he remarks, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks a sign, but no sign will be given to it except, what? The sign of Jonah. The only sign of Jesus' divinity and lordship that would be given, he says, is an event parallel to the event that Jonah experienced. Jonah spent three nights in the belly of the great fish to the world considered dead. But what does God do but rise him up, as it were, out of the belly of that great fish? Jesus spent three days in the belly of the earth, having been dead but now appears before them alive. So his appearance in the flesh back from the dead proves to the disciples that he is who he has claimed to be, none other than the Lord of glory. And moreover, the reason he emphasizes his physical resurrection is because it has important implications concerning his work of redemption. It's his bodily resurrection that produces for us the greatest confidence in his finished work. 
since he's risen from the grave, defeating death, Jesus has proved that he has accomplished redemption in its fullness. His defeat of death proves his sovereign ability to make right all that was made wrong in the fall when Adam ate the forbidden fruit. You remember the promise that God made to Adam when he first created him in Genesis chapter 2. We read there, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, what does he promise? You shall surely die. And in his rebellious act of eating the fruit, mankind was plunged into death, both physical and spiritual death. All was no longer in the good state that God made it. Instead of living forever, walking with God in fellowship and communion, man was now destined for physical decay and spiritual defiance against God. Yet Jesus came into the world to restore God's elect to the condition in which he made them. That is a spirit, or excuse me, a, a, a state of both spiritual and physical life. In John 6, Jesus says plainly, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. The, significant, the significance of Jesus' bodily resurrection, you see, is that. Our hope of full redemption through our own resurrection is solidified in looking on Jesus' resurrection. Friends, Paul is clear from Romans chapter 5 that as our representative head, what is true of Christ is true of those united to him by faith. Romans 5.18 outlines it succinctly, saying, Therefore, just as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Therefore, the significance of Jesus' physical resurrection is to show that he really has conquered death. Not just sin, friends, but physical death. Proving that he is truly the Lord of life. Lord of both physical and spiritual life. In his resurrection, he proves that life belongs to him. He is able to put it down and take it up again. It is his. He's able to give it and take it. And because he is who he says he is, he's able to do what he says he will do. He's able to restore the children of God, back to their perfect physical and spiritual state in their resurrection. And, and as if it were not enough for the disciples to, to touch the nail marks on Jesus' body, he then goes one step further with them to prove his humanity in asking them in verse 41, Have you anything here to eat? 
again, as Jesus has given the, a lesson here on how to understand uh, spirits, he says, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones. Friends, it requires a, a functioning body of flesh to eat and process food. And that's just what we find him doing. Not only did Jesus request food, verses 42 and 43 say, they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate before them. This was to remove all doubt, you see. You see, before Jesus ate the food, the text says they still disbelieve for joy, which sounds odd. Though Jesus has, had engaged their senses, allowing them to, to see him and touch him, their rationality would not let them believe that this was their teacher, risen from the grave. And notice the cause there in the text of their disbelief. It was their emotions. The text says, for joy they disbelieved. Now, you might say, well, didn't you just say that, didn't you just attribute their disbelief rather to their rationality? Well, yeah, well, yes, but that's because it's clearly that after having their senses engaged sufficiently to prove Jesus' resurrection, the thought of this made them so glad that their rationality kicks in. Their, their skeptical, skeptical rash, rationalism, excuse me, made them think, wait, 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 wait. People don't rise from the dead. I, I know this seems to be true, but it's too good to be true. If I'm this elated about it, I should probably doubt it. Sounds like a true cynic, right? I see myself a little too much in that. But this is their response. It's like when Jacob received the news that Joseph, his son, was alive after years of believing him to be dead. The author of Genesis tells us that Upon receiving the news of Joseph, his heart became numb, for he did not believe them. And it was only after several proofs were given to him that the text says the spirit of their father, Jacob, revived. And he said, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. Just as Jacob's doubts were removed by the proof of his living son, here, Jesus eats with them, proving that he is alive again, and all doubt is removed. <clears throat> now this section of the passage is certainly to be understood as a rebuke from Jesus. He was here to confront the reality that certainly not all of the disciples believed that he had risen from the dead, and none of them were totally settled in their conviction that he had risen from the dead. Yet it's worthy of note that the whole flow of this passage, friends, speaks to the unwavering compassion of the Lord in his pursuit of his people. Notice the heart of Christ here. Even in his rebuke, what, what do we see him doing? He's drawing near to those who are his, pronouncing peace. He doesn't recoil from the state of the, their heart within them. Rather, he, he leans into it. 
And He provides what's lacking in their understanding. This is the compassionate Lord that He is. It's, it's His compassion that leads Him to reveal Himself as the risen Lord, you see. And He doesn't stop at revealing Himself to them. He goes on to solidify their faith by uncovering the testimony about Him from the Scriptures. That's the next movement we see in the text, the revelation about the risen Lord. In order to more fully convince them that what they've witnessed about Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection did not somehow depart from God's eternal plan and purpose, Jesus begins teaching the disciples in the same way that He taught the disciples on the road to Emmaus. This is sort of a road to Emmaus part two scene. In verse 44, Jesus says, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So he says, Don't you remember? I told you over and over again when I walked with you for three years that all that was written about me in the Old Testament must be fulfilled. All of it. And then in verse 45, <clears throat> we're told that he takes them for a, a, a review lesson. Look, looking there, we read, Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. So from verse 44 to verse 46, we see that Jesus is doing a recap of the Old Testament, showing how all of its various parts find fulfillment in Him. And particularly, He emphasizes how His suffering is foretold in the Hebrew Scriptures. In order to bring the disciples' hearts and minds back where they should be, to a place of, of total and complete trust in the Lord, He takes them to the Scriptures. To, to, to settle their minds after being so jostled, after, suffer, after seeing the suffering that He endured, He shows them the full depiction of the Messiah from the Old Testament. He, he doesn't actually take them to one verse that specifically says the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. Instead, he takes them through a litany of passages that, when taken together, provide the full picture of the Messiah. Over against the, the misinformation, excuse me, misinformed opinion of the Pharisees, thinking that Christ would come first and foremost as a royal king, he emphasizes here the means by which he obtains his kingship. Jesus shows them that the messianic prophecy of the suffering servant must be fulfilled just as much as and completely as the promise that Jesus would be lifted up like the bronze serpent in Numbers 21. Jesus would not just fulfill the Davidic covenant promising that he would sit on the throne for all eternity, he must also endure the words spoken of him by David in Psalm 22, which describe the agony and humiliation of the cross. 
no doubt, in speaking of his resurrection. He took them to Psalm 16.10, which says, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. Which is the subject of sermons that both Peter and Paul later preach. He showed them that all the scriptures speak of Jesus. Greg did a a wonderful job unpacking this reality for us last week, so I I won't rehash it all. But but the point that Jesus is making here is that when, when the scriptures are read accurately, they're understood to have fulfillment in him. And that because the Old Testament speaks of a chosen one that would suffer under the wrath of God for a time, Jesus' disciples can have complete and total confidence that He is the one who fulfills God's plan of redemption. The plan has not gone awry. It's right on track. Not just the exalted depictions of God's anointed one does He embody, but the depictions of hardship as well. How else then? How else? Could one consider the Word of God and consider Jesus Christ without determining that in Him they behold the Son of God? And as a side note, this is really instructive for us in how we read the Scriptures, particularly the Old Testament Scriptures. Again, Greg spoke to this last week, but repetition is good for the soul, right? we should be reminded that we must not read the Scriptures with a mere historical or mere moralistic lens. We're most tempted to do this in the Old Testament Scriptures, simply gleaning historical facts about what God has done or gleaning moral lessons from what we find Him condemning or commending there. And those things are certainly there, in the text of Scripture, yet we neglect the fullness of the meaning if we don't see how it points to Christ. It's only in seeing Christ in the text that we can take full benefit from the Scriptures and allow them to minister to our souls in a sustaining way. And rest assured, we are to glean from them. I mean, after all, where does Jesus go to settle the disciples' hearts and minds? The scriptures. I need to remind you of Psalm 119. Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Or Psalm 19 that says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. But friends, it's in seeing Christ there, you see, that the soul is really revived. The great John Calvin said, Since Christ is the end and soul of the law, whatever we learn without him and apart from him is idle and unprofitable. So do not settle, brothers and sisters. Do not settle in your reading or in the preaching of God's word. Do not settle for anything less than Christ on every page of the Bible. Yet yet Jesus guiding 
the disciples through the Old Testament was, was not only to comfort them amid what seemed to be chaos, it was also to concentrate them on the cause for which He came. And that is made clear in our remaining verses. The last section of our, our passage, Luke tells us the, what the response to the risen Lord ought to be. Jesus' interaction with the disciples here makes clear that the Scriptures produce not only the necessity of a suffering Savior, but also produces the necessity of proclamation of that Savior. Look at verse 47. As Jesus continues His lesson from the Old Testament, He says that they also teach that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all nations. So the flow of the passage produces a prescription for followers of Christ. We see here that as the truth about Christ is revealed to us, we're called to respond to it by making the truth known to others. The progression of Jesus' teaching from the Old Testament is that just as surely as the Scriptures demanded that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead so also they demand that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name. And notice, friends, that Jesus does not give here an ambiguous command to His disciples saying to, to preach the gospel and then leave them to determine the content of the gospel. No, He provides the content of what is to be proclaimed as the good news to all nations. Namely, he commands that what's to be proclaimed is twofold. First, there is the repentance of sins. And second, there is the forgiveness of sins. Without both of these things, friends, there is no gospel being preached. People must be called to repent of their sins. That, that is, they must... Be called to turn from sin. That's what repentance means. To turn from wrongdoing. It's not merely to confess to God that you've offended Him. It is to humbly turn from that which offends Him. And Jesus says that the call to turn is essential to the gospel message. Now we understand that if the call to turn from our sins against God is essential to the gospel, then that assumes that we have all sinned against God. That's so obvious that it's not even a matter of discussion here. But along with the call to repent of sin, there is the glorious proclamation of forgiveness of sins. For all those who respond to the gospel with repentant faith, there is the promise of forgiveness from the God we've offended. Friends, we, we must remain crystal clear on this, on the substance of the gospel message. There, there are many evangelical churches today, this very hour, thinking that they are preaching the gospel, yet they they fail to preach in a way that honors the weight given in the biblical text to each of these two elements. They are either light on the call to repentance or they're light on the offer of 
free grace for the forgiveness of sins. Going light on the call to repentance produces an arrogant heart that presumes on the grace of God. While going light on the free grace offer of forgiveness in Christ produces arrogance in another way. It results in a legalistic attitude that labors under the idea that we can somehow merit God's grace. I had a conversation with a uh, church member here just a couple of months ago about the state of the church and how many unhealthy churches there are which claim to preach the gospel. And yet, while claiming to preach the gospel, they recoil at the thought of using biblical language to articulate the gospel. Failure to emphasize biblical language like repentance from sin, and failure to honor biblical categories like these results in a gospel that's not clear. You hear phrases like, if you've made a mess of your life, or, or if your life seems chaotic and out of control, or if you're, if you're beaten down by the demands of life, then, then come to Jesus and let him put you back together. Some iteration of that type of phrasing, friends, pervades churches today as they seek to really remove the offense of the gospel. But we must never forget that the true gospel is offensive to our natural state. That sort of presentation may describe aspects and applications of the gospel, but it is not the gospel, friends. So we must never recoil from using the Bible's framework and language to articulate the gospel. Repentance of sin and forgiveness of sin is the only message that Jesus has authorized to be proclaimed in His name. And if we're not clear on the gospel, then we cannot be obedient to Christ's command. Because according to verse 48, look at it. We are to be witnesses of these things. We are to understand Jesus to be giving an imperative here. A command to be witnesses. And the reference to these things is all that he's been over with the disciples here. The disciples were to bear witness to the world about Christ's suffering and death. That it alone is what brings forgiveness for sins. They were to bear witness to his resurrection, that it is what gives the hope of eternal life with God. And they were to bear witness that repentance toward God is what brings forgiveness of our sins. But this command extends beyond the disciples that gathered with him on that occasion. Jesus' call here applies in the immediate context to the disciples who are with him there. But the scope of the command necessitates that it extends past the disciples to every disciple in every age, in every location. Where is this proclamation to go? To all nations. In John's vision of heaven in Revelation 7, 9, we're told that a great multitude 
that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages stand before the throne giving praise to God. And in order to accomplish that vision, Jesus says this proclamation must go to all nations. Thus, it is the call of every believer everywhere down throughout history to proclaim repentance of sins and the forgiveness of sins in His name. The apostles were eyewitnesses to this most blessed reality of, of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And the church is built on their testimony. This is the method that God has ordained. But having believed their testimony, we are to bear witness to it in the world ourselves. You know, I hear people say, well, I'm not gifted to be an evangelist. And to be sure, the Bible is clear that some are particularly gifted to be evangelists. But don't misunderstand the scriptures to mean that only some then are called to the work of evangelism. I would contend that discerning a particular gift of the Holy Spirit has much more to do with evaluating the fruit born out of employing that gift than the ability to engage in the activity. Romans 12 says that the Spirit empowers some specifically to be givers and says that they should do so generously. The same passage says that others are gifted to do acts of mercy and that they should do so cheerfully. Yet we don't take that to mean that other Christians are excused from the commands of the New Testament in general to give and to act mercifully, do we? No. Rather, it, it, it's, it is that the Spirit empowers some in such a way that when they engage in these specific acts, greater degree of, of fruit seem to flow from it than when others engage in these types of acts. And so also it is with those gifted by the Spirit to be evangelists. The way we observe that gifting is through the inordinary amount of fruit that flows from them. And they're witnessing. But friends, we do not evaluate our submission to God's commands in relation to the fruit borne out by our submission. We submit to God's commands out of faithfulness. Mark it down. Keep this principle in your head, brothers and sisters. The health of the Christian life is evaluated on faithfulness over fruitfulness. Faithfulness over fruitfulness every time. This is why gospel proclamation is one of the values laid out in our mission statement of our church. Jesus has commanded this of all his disciples. We simply are to seek to be faithful, trusting the fruit to him. And the truth is that whether you believe yourself to possess, to, to possess the, the gift of evangelism or not, Jesus makes plain here that all believers are empowered by the Holy Spirit to be obedient witnesses. Look at verse 49. Jesus says, And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father 
upon you. That promise is none other than the Holy Spirit that came on the day of Pentecost and now lives in every believer. And it's by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that Jesus goes on to say, you are clothed with power from on high. What sort of power from on high are believers clothed in? Well, the complete investigation of that is beyond the scope of this sermon, but, but it is apparent in the context of this passage that Jesus means to say that His disciples, every one of them, are supernaturally empowered to obey His commands, to bear witness to the world about Him. We find here again that, like we do in so many passages of Scripture, that Whatever God requires of us, He supplies to us. The implication is clear, brothers and sisters. If we find ourselves thinking and acting as though we are unable, unfit, or ill-equipped to bear witness about the gospel of the Lord Jesus, that can only stem from one of two things. And I'm speaking to myself just as much as I'm speaking to anybody else. Let's make that clear. But we think and act that way, friends. It, it, it can only come from one of two things. It can stem from ignorance of the glorious reality that God the Holy Spirit indwells and empowers you to obey Christ's commands. Or it stems from sinful neglect of the glorious reality that God the Holy Spirit both indwells and empowers you to obey Christ's commands. So the application of this passage is self-evident, isn't it? You know, I'd be remiss in commenting on the application of this passage to, to not speak directly to any here who've not yet embraced Christ as Lord even in a group like this. I don't know each of your hearts. The Word of God can expose within us. We've perhaps masqueraded as having believed in a resurrected Lord. But when we drill down in it and into it and consider it, perhaps it's a struggle. Friend, if that be you, I would call you to consider the fact of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. And notice I said fact. Not what's called by some a fairy tale, but the fact of Jesus' resurrection. As we've, we've walked through Luke's account of the resurrection over the last few weeks, all rational skepticism should be removed. We've considered the eyewitness testimony that has no credible scholarly refutation down through history to this day. It is a fact, friend, that Jesus of Nazareth died and then rose from the grave. Consider that. Consider that. Who else then could be the Lord of life? Who could be the creator of heaven and earth, but he who visibly and physically conquered death? And if you see that today, then believe that. I urge you to do what Jesus says here in the passage. Repent of your sin against Him and receive 
forgiveness of your sins from him. Now for my brothers and sisters, beloved, the call is clear. Embrace the power of the Holy Spirit that indwells you. Throw off any restraint of bearing witness to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And, and understand, there is no other means of salvation that God has appointed but the witness of His people. We're it. You're it. You. You and I are God's appointed means for proclaiming repentance for the forgiveness of sins. You and me. That's God's plan. So if you're waiting on anything else, that's not God's plan. It's not going to happen. It's you and me. And it comes down to our embrace of the power of the Holy Spirit that indwells us, friends. We are called to proclaim repentance for the forgiveness of sins to, to your neighbors and to the nations. So let us repent of our sinful neglect. And as we behold the revelation of the resurrected Lord, let us respond in obedience as his witnesses. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you for your word, God. We, oh, God, we thank you for the work of faith that you've done in our hearts here to believe on the risen Lord. It is no, no mere matter of intellect, God. It is a sovereign, supernatural act that you have made us alive in seeing the resurrection of Christ. Lord, I pray that today we would find the resurrection anew, bolstering to our faith. And entrusting in the reality of it, God, oh God, that we would embrace anew the Holy Spirit's empowerment of us because of it. And we ask it all in Christ's name. Amen.